Good morning. My name is John Allen. Uh, welcome to Risen Church. Um, I am, uh, we have been officially going through the book of Revelation verse by verse for an entire year today. <laughs> Some of you are like, yay, verse by verse through Revelation. If you've been with us, you know that it has actually been extremely encouraging. This is one of those books which is pretty intense, um, and it has no doubt been quite a ride, right? We've been going through verse by verse through this God-breathed masterpiece in our series called Victory Unveiled, and I hope that it has been as encouraging for you as it has been for me. If you are uh, new with us this morning um, and you're just kind of diving in here, um, we'll try and catch you up here, and this is going to be one of those messages by the way, just a, a heads up, this is going to be one of those messages where you're going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant, right? You might feel a little soaked and overwhelmed, but I promise if you just open your mouth, you're going to get good gulps of some serious goodness, amen? So um, sit tight, lean in, uh, and, and I, I believe God has a lot for us. Um, again, this is a masterpiece, it is a God-breathed masterpiece, uh, and it's really encouraging, um, it's been quite a ride because it's also been quite a year. Uh, it's been a, a challenge this year, um, but it's also been a challenge going through this text. But we tried to press into the text and the context of this letter. So we've been leaning into the Spirit of God to hear both what he has, been, what he has uh, or what he was saying to the first century church as it was originally written um, so that we can apply it accurately to our lives here in the 21st century. So I originally, when we started going through Revelation, there was so much stuff happening in our world, and there were so many conjectures and theories and, and ideas about Revelation, and people were like looking to Revelation, there's like all kinds of like craziness and ideas about what it is, and I'm thinking, let's actually look at what it says. That's a pretty good idea, don't you think? I think it's a good idea. You guys can talk back, so this is one of those things, this is like a, feel free to throw an amen or something out there. But last service was like super energetic, so you guys got, you got, this is an extra anointed service, so let's do this. So, um, again, uh, we're looking at this, we want to apply it to our lives, and as it turns out, even the difficult and uncomfortable parts of this book are extremely relevant and extremely revealing and extremely encouraging. So this letter is an invitation to experience truth and victory. It's the pulling back of the physical veil and the exposing of what is truly happening in the world around us. Not just in the first century, but also for us now in the 21st century and even beyond. So again, this isn't just about something that happened thousands of years ago. And it's not just about something that's going to happen in a distant future. What we're looking at here, these words speak directly to us here and now today. And they reveal who truly holds the victory. That is Jesus Christ. So this morning we're kind of rounding the corner to the finish line of Revelation. And what we're presented with here is the end. However, even though we're looking at the end, that end is actually presented to us as a new beginning. And so this morning, we've come to Revelation 20, which is jam-packed with so much content that there is absolutely no way that I'm going to be able to address all that's going on in this chapter, and that was confirmed to me in the first service. So um, 
We are actually, I'm not even sure how far we're going to get this morning. I, I, we're going to probably make it all the way through the, uh, the first 10 verses, but I'm going to, um, we're going to dive in here and I'm going to do my best to flesh out as much beauty and application as is possible in the time that we have. Um, so we're going to read through this chapter so you can at least get acclimated to the content of the entire chapter uh, of Revelation 20, and then we're going to drop back and hopefully walk back through at least the first 10 verses together. And there's a ton of really big picture implications from this chapter um, about the rest of the Bible and the rest of basically Christianity and and eternity, all in this chapter. So um, there's a lot here, but here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else from this, here's what I want you to get. Above all else, the Great Commission isn't just about getting people to heaven when they die. It's about empowering people to participate in bringing heaven to earth even before they die. So I'm going to say that again. The Great Commission, which is what we as a church partner in together to make disciples who make disciples, right? From here to the ends of the earth, this is the Great Commission. These are our our, our literal marching orders from King Jesus, right? This is the Great Commission. But the Great Commission isn't just about getting people to heaven when they die. It's about empowering people to participate in bringing heaven to earth even before they die. See, it's easy to look at this world and get really stressed out about the troubles and tribulations that we see everywhere. Right? Maybe it's just me. Right? Anxiety creeps in and we begin to view circumstances without hope. Right? This, that's what's happening when you live this life without a very present and very sovereign Savior and King that you trust in the now. And that you view your future with Him reigning in that future as well. Like that's what happens when you forget that He knows what He's doing. And He's even, even working all of it for your good if you love Him and are called to His purposes. If you don't, everything's not working for your good. In fact, it's just the opposite. But then sometimes we can also swing to the opposite extreme and just kind of check out and detach completely, right? Like it, it, which is also a form of hopelessness. When you check out, that's also a form of hopelessness. To give up on the present entirely and just sort of huddle and hide with sort of that like fatalistic mentality of kind of who cares? It's all going to burn anyway, Right? Like, that's also hopelessness. That's when people treat Christianity as though it's only about salvation, and what we do in this life doesn't matter at all outside of conversion or, and or leading others to conversion. Like, we think that it's all about sometimes just, as long as we can just get somebody to pray that prayer and get that hand to go up, and they pray the prayer, and they're saved, and it's good, and it's all about fire insurance, and nothing else we do really matters. But Jesus has a way more robust plan for the mission and purpose of his people, even on this side of his return. Now again, salvation is where it all starts, but it's just the beginning, right? This is why Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. You guys remember this one in Matthew 6? Repeat after me. Our Father in heaven. You got, look, 
I don't know what it is, man. Got, we got coffee. We got all kinds of things. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. One day when we die. Ah. <laughs> One day when we die and go to heaven, that's when your kingdom will come and your will will be done. No! That's not what it says. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Say it with me. On earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Now! That's quite the endeavor, amen? That's quite a challenge. But the spirit that dwells within you is up for the challenge. The title of the sermon this morning is Victory Unveiled, Your Kingdom Come. So turn with me to Revelation 20. We're going to, again, read through verse 1 through 15. Read through the entire chapter. Again, like I said, I'm not, we're not going to make it all the way through, but I want you to be familiar with this entire thing together. And then next week we'll finish up the bits that we don't get to this week. So, verse 1. You guys ready? Here we go. Revelation 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. Like I said, there's a lot going on in this chapter. There's a whole lot going on. 
we're presented with three visions in this chapter. First, we're presented with what's been called the millennial reign of Christ in verses 1 through 6. Then, we get the final defeat of what's been called the counterfeit or the unholy trinity. Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. We, we see their final defeat. And that's in the second vision here. And then the third one that we're going to get to a little bit uh, later, um, or next week more, <laughs> is we're presented with a vision of the final judgment before God's great white throne in verse 11 through 15. Again, we're going to hone in on that more next week, but I want you to see it in context here with these first two visions because they are directly related. So one of the unique characteristics, though, as we go forward here, one of the unique characteristics of Revelation is the extreme symbolism that's utilized to convey deep spiritual realities. In order to even understand any of this, you got to understand this. Numbers, images, and phrases are used to call on Old Testament stories and bring life and context through our imaginations in order to communicate these truths in a way that transcends any attempt at sort of like dry academic exercise. Right? In other words, in order to accurately receive this revelation, you've got to engage it with spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. You've got to see it through the power of the Holy Spirit because it's designed to invite us into a spiritual encounter with God, heart, mind, and soul. You can't approach this like a textbook. You can't approach this like a novel. If you do, you're going to miss it. You've got to approach this amazing, spirit-filled, God-breathed book on God's terms as he intends it to be read and approached, which means you've got to approach it spiritually. One of the most unique attributes of this letter, as we've already experienced so many times, is the way that it presents us with certain events and timelines from different angles and different perspectives. Then it'll present us with something, an event, or a timeline, and then it's going to circle back, and it'll present those same events or timelines from a different angle or a different perspective. And it'll sometimes hone in on different facets of that timeline to give you a better grasp of what's happening. Right? It's kind of like watching uh, the Olympics or like a sporting event on television, right? Like in order to give you the most comprehensive experience, you get multiple different angles of the same event or the same thing that's happening. We see this all the time. Like sometimes you're presented with a camera angle from the stands, or like the 50-yard line, and then sometimes you're given an angle that's like from above, right? And then other times you're presented with a replay or even a flashback to another game to give you more information about a particular player. Or sometimes we've got like, you know, the quarterback's like mic'd up and you hear Peyton Manning like, Omaha, Omaha, and you're like, what, what, what Omaha? What does that mean? And you're like, I don't know, but it means something, Right? And it brings you into what's happening in the game, right? Like, think about how the replay has changed the entire, like, way that we deal with sports, right? Like, the, look at what the replay has done to football games, you know? Like, did his foot pass the end zone? Well, I don't know. From this angle, it looks like his knee was down. But then when you hone in, you zoom in from this other angle over here, you're like, nope, that's a touchdown. Right? So you can trust that it's true and it's good because you have these different perspectives. Because it hones in on different aspects and different angles. This is how Revelation is written. 
It presents certain events, characters, and timelines, and then it circles back around and it presents that same event or timeline from a different perspective. So it's almost as though you're experiencing this with your heart, your mind, and your soul. Like almost even better than being there because you get these honed-in perspectives from the perspective of the Spirit of God himself. Pretty cool, huh? I think so. It's called recapitulation. That's the theological term for it. If you try to read Revelation as though it's strictly chronological, you're going to get really confused and or you're going to come up with some crazy, confused theology. Remember that just because John says, then I saw, doesn't mean that what he's seeing is an articulation of a particular sequence of events. Like, it simply means that this is the order in which he saw the visions, not necessarily the order in which these visions play themselves out in history. That's very important, and you'll see that as we go forward. For example, we've already seen the return of Christ to the earth multiple times in the past 19 chapters of Revelation. And the most detailed vision of this return was what we looked at last week in Revelation 19. But this week... Revelation 20 presents it again, but it does so from a much broader perspective. And I think it's a a broader perspective that takes us from the time of Christ's resurrection to the time of his return and judgment, all in one chapter. Now, there's some who would read Revelation chronologically and place all of what we're reading in a distant future. They would place it after the second coming. Everything in this chapter, they would say, is after the second coming of Christ. That's actually the way that I originally read um, and was originally taught to read this chapter, is that it is occurring after Christ returns to the earth. I used to read this as though it was presenting what will happen at that point after Jesus returns to the earth. However, upon a closer look, I think it's clear through a, a lot of time digging in, praying, studying, I think it's clear that this is articulating what takes place before his return to the earth. That this entire chapter actually is talking to something that is way more present. So, here's my disclaimer, though, this morning. All right? Listen up. Here's my disclaimer. There are a lot of people who love Jesus with all of their heart who understand this passage to be describing events that take place after Jesus comes back physically. It's not heresy to believe that, right? And it's definitely not grounds for division. So if this is your perspective, then I want you to feel welcomed and I want you to feel embraced into our church as a brother or sister, okay? Amen? Again, I used to read it that way, and I was no less Christian when I did. (laughs) Amen? So, um, I do believe, however, uh, I, I, I hope that this encourages us all to lean into what the Spirit of God is presenting to us in this letter. So this morning, I'm going to do my best to cut through all of that stuff and get to the heart of what I believe the Lord is communicating to us in this chapter. So, um, I, and, and what he's communicating here is the power of his kingdom the kingdom of heaven coming to the earth. That's what we're seeing. So, let's get into it. 
So when does his kingdom come? How does his kingdom come? Where does his kingdom come? Through whom does his kingdom come? And what does it all mean for us now? Like how then shall we live today? That's what I hope to cover here. So um, let's drop back. Verse 1. Walk back through this. All right, you guys still with me? Okay. Verse 1. Um, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So, we get a vision of Satan being bound for a thousand years. And we're told that he's to be released for a little while after this thousand years. So this thousand years has come to be known as the millennial reign of Christ. So the first thing that I want to address here is the symbolic nature of the number 1,000. Okay? As we've already seen over and over again, numbers are almost always non-literal and highly symbolic in Revelation. And the number 1,000 is symbolic in almost every other book in the Bible as well to convey a large amount of something, right? So we've seen throughout Revelation and throughout many other books in Scripture that numbers represent something deeper. Like the number three represents something like the Trinity. It represents divine mentality. Number four represents all-encompassing, the whole world, the four corners of the earth kind of thing. Number seven is purity. We get six. Remember, like six, six, six. It's almost perfect, but it's not quite, which makes it perfectly deceptive because it's everything but what matters, right? Jesus. So the mark of the beast is that which believes all this stuff except for what matters the most, which is the blood of Christ. So we've talked about all that stuff. I don't have time to get into it, but the point is numbers mean uh, a lot more than just a literal metric. Amen? And so we see here that the number 1,000 is another very symbolic number, and especially in Revelation and the whole Bible. Think of passages like God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Right? That's a statement about God's infinite resources. It's not a literal inventory of how many cows God owns. Right? It's not like, okay, well, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but that thousand and one hill over there, that's not God's. That's off limits. Right? No, God's like, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine, that's all mine. Because he's the author, he's the king. Amen? So it means a lot. Or how about one day is like a thousand years unto the Lord, right? Or to the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Some have actually taken that and they take it literally and they're like, so if one day equals a thousand, that means God didn't create the earth in six days. It was actually 6,000 days. No, that's not what it's saying. Like, it's like they treat it like it's some divine code to be cracked. It, it's not. It's a simple a way, simply a way of saying a lot. In fact, it goes even deeper than that. It's, it, there's an even greater depth to what's being communicated uh, in the number 1,000 since, watch this, the number 10 is the number for completion, right? Ten commandments, we see things like this all the time. The ten is the number for completion, and the number three, again, is the number for divinity, like the trinity of God. And so ten times ten times ten, right? So it's ten to the third power, is a thousand, 
What's being communicated by that number speaks directly to a deep spiritual truth that it's not a reference to a literal thousand years. It's symbolism pointing to divine completion, right? Which conveys a very deep reality, right? That it's like the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had ended. So, so these are, this is the kind of language the scripture uses throughout the Bible. So the question then is, when does this age, this millennial age, take place? As I've said, some say that it takes place after Jesus returns to the earth as the physical king coming back. After all, we just read chapter 19 last week, which detailed the return of Christ to the earth. But as I said, we've already seen Revelation recap that same timeline between Christ's first and second coming over and over again. That recapitulation, it's already done that. So here we have another one of those recapitulations happening, which presents that same time frame between Christ's first and second coming. By the way, that would be a way more relevant letter to the first century church, don't you think? Which makes this letter way more relevant to the 21st century church as well, since we are in between the time of Christ's first coming and his second coming. This isn't just a time capsule to be thrown into the dirt for a coming people to dig up thousands of years, of years later in order for it to be relevant. That means that what we're seeing here isn't just something that's relevant to a distant past or a distant future, right? What we're pre presented here with is a vision of our current circumstances, okay? Now, you might say, but it says that Satan is bound for this thousand-year period. Like, he's bound. You just turn on the news, and it's clear that he is busy. He has been very busy at deceiving the world. It doesn't take a whole lot for that reality to be uh, pretty obvious, right? And I fully agree. But it doesn't say... Um, that it, yeah, it doesn't say that Satan is bound in a way that he can't do anything. It doesn't say that he can't operate like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. Not at all. In fact, there is a stipulation here that's given about the way that he is bound. Verse 3 tells us that he was bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. In other words, that he might not deceive the nations the way that he has in the past. That's this clear stipulation that's given here. That's extremely important. It doesn't mean that he's not at work in this present evil, evil age. He most certainly is. And any reading of the Bible will tell you that, especially in the New Testament. He is the one behind the Antichrist systems that oppose and oppress the people of God throughout this evil age. And he's the one who deceives the world into opposing the God of creation, which, by the way, is the very definition of insanity. Like, you got, you got to be insane to think that you can beat God, right? But that, the, the fact that people think that that's a thing is because there is a deception there, right? However, Satan has been limited during this specific period of time in that power to deceive. He's been specifically limited or chained in his power to deceive the nations as he had been able to do in the past. 
In other words, he's been chained from preventing the gospel of Jesus Christ to go unto all nations, even to the ends of the earth. That should sound a little familiar to you. He's no longer able to deceive the nations or the Gentiles, which is another way of talking about everyone who's not Jewish, right? That means you, unless you're Jewish. You are a Gentile. You're the nations. Like, my ancestors were not Jewish. My ancestors worshipped false gods and were bewitched by Satan for generations. And unless your ancestors, unless your ancestors were Jewish, they were too. Because the Jewish people were the people that God had articulated himself to and chosen and demonstrated his love and truth through to other people. But other people, the nations, as we see throughout the Old Testament, are, they're called the nations, they were blinded, they were deceived, and salvation had only come to the Jews in the Old Testament. Right? My ancestors, they may have looked for light, but they found only darkness because darkness had captured them. But something happened. A shift in authority took place. God himself stepped in to save. There was an inbreaking of the true king of kings. God himself broke into the dark. Something is different. As Isaiah 9, verse 6 through 7 put it, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end to the ends of the earth. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, he's going to do it himself. It's not just up to you. He himself is going to do it. See, before Christ came, salvation was confined again to Old Testament Israel. But because of what Christ did at the cross and through the resurrection, he broke the power of the enemy over the nations and he opened the eyes of the nations. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news that God became a man. He lived the life that we couldn't live, and he died the death that we all deserve to die, and he conquered death in the grave, and he paved the way to eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die. It starts now through the indwelling and filling of his Holy Spirit, the person of God that comes in and grafts us into his family. This is the gospel. It's not just something we're waiting to experience one day. Yes, it will be in fullness and it'll be physical when he returns, but it's now. So important to get this. It starts now. This is what Jesus did through the cross and the resurrection. This is the kingdom that he's been advancing upon the earth in the hearts of those who would receive him. He has declared to all nations, let them come. To whoever would receive Christ, he says, let them come to me. Let them be washed in the blood of the Lamb. He bound the enemy at the cross of Christ, and he declared, let them all become sons and daughters of the Most High King, Jew and Gentile, to the ends of the earth. He bound the enemy, and he grafted all who would come and receive the grace he offers into the family of God by the blood 
of the Lamb. This is the gospel. Again, it doesn't mean everybody's going to come, but it does mean that everybody's invited. In Matthew 12, Jesus delivers a demon-oppressed man. Right? You guys, if you've read the Gospels, you know that that's actually, you know, there's nothing really that odd about it because it happens so much. Like Jesus is constantly, it's like, oh yeah, well, there's a demon. Jesus is there. Demon's gone. Right? Like, with a word, gone. It's like expected when you're reading through the Gospels in the New Testament. Almost to the point where it's almost like it becomes sort of trivial. But this was a radical thing. Nowhere in the Old Testament is it recorded that anyone is totally delivered of the demonic. Nowhere in the Old Testament. This was a radical, this was a new, revolutionary thing that took place in the New Testament. So much so that it was so radical that the religious leaders of the day could only justify it by saying that Jesus must be in league with Satan. That's what they said. That's what they accused him of. Then Jesus reasons with them, and he's like, that's ridiculous. Right? They accuse him of casting Satan out by Satan, and he says, that's ridiculous. Why would Satan cast himself out? And then he goes on to say, in Matthew 12, verse 28 through 29, watch this. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom, the rule, and the reign of the true king has come upon you. Verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, I have come into Satan's house and I'm binding him. And I'm plundering all of the people. This is what Jesus did. This is the gospel. In Luke 10, he even commissions his disciples to go out in his authority to cast out demons. And they come back and they're pumped up, right? They're, they're, like, they're like, God, even the demons submit to what we're saying. Even the demons listen to us. That was a radical thing, right? Verse, uh, Luke 10, verse 18 through 20, this is what he says. So they're all pumped up. They say even the demons are, are subject to us. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, which we've seen in Revelation to be a reference to the demonic, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, it's not about you, it's not about your pride, so don't gloat in your rejoicing and how great you are, but be thankful that your names are written in heaven, that you, that, like your name is on the heavenly registry of the citizens of the kingdom. That's what he's saying. We're going to talk about this. That was a reference, by the way, to Revelation 20:15, the book of life, which we're going to talk about more next week. In Matthew 16, Jesus said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Like, change your mindset. Think about what he says when he says that. This is an all-out assault on the strongholds of darkness. Like, people think, Jesus says, 
the gates of hell will not stand. That means we're on the attack. That doesn't mean that we're huddling and hiding. That means that you are the children of light walking in the darkness on a mission with the authority of the king. This is why he taught us to pray in Matthew 6, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John 12, verse 31. Just before Jesus goes to the cross, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Why? Because he's binding him at the cross. The decisive defeat of Satan happened through the cross and resurrection. And for all who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, we've been commissioned as his disciples and empowered by his authority to advance his rule and his reign upon the earth. Not because we're obligated to, not because we have to, not because we're like, ah, Jesus doesn't have to do this. Right? Like, I used to be awesome before I got saved. You should have seen me before, man. I was wild and crazy and life was awesome. And then I met Jesus. You did not meet Jesus. No, you did not. You met some rules and you might have met a religion, but you did not meet this missional glorious. You did not meet the abundant life giving, resurrecting, all-encompassing king of eternity. Because if you did, you would worship when you talk about that moment. Like, I think about the time before I was walking with Jesus, and I'm like, yeah, I did dumb stuff, but it was dumb. I wish I hadn't done it. It wasn't fun. It was stupid. Jesus saved me. But he didn't just save me and set me aside and go, okay, hold on tight, sit back, don't do anything, I'll be back soon. Right? Just try not to cuss. Like, that's not what he did. He empowered, he empowered me with his spirit and called me to cry out for heaven to come to earth. Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. Listen to this. This is the Great Commission. You hear it all the time. I want you to hear it with fresh ears. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, just before he ascends into heaven, he says, all authority, say all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All of it. Not just the authority in heaven. He's not just like, well, as long as you're in church, then I reign. You can be the deepest, darkest jungles, the craziest, most insane club or darkest night of your life. You can be Afghanistan. You can be in Indonesia. You can be, you can go to the depths of Sheol. He is there. All authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus Christ. Therefore. And what's the therefore, therefore? Whenever you see therefore in scripture, you've got to be like, what's the therefore, therefore? It's there for the authority that has just been given. He says, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Say all nations. Not just the Gentile nations, but the Jewish nation as well. It's not like Gentile versus Jew. Now it's like everybody, right? Baptizing them or immersing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And verse 20, don't leave it out. 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Not just teaching them how to get somebody to pray the sinner's prayer. Teaching them everything about life in Christ because it's designed for human flourishing and the glory of God and the name and fame of Jesus Christ in every aspect of life. That's Christianity. That's what we're doing. And don't forget, which is another way of saying, behold, (laughs) I am with you always, even to the end of the age, no matter what circumstances you face. This is saying that we've been commissioned to make disciples who make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that we're empowered and commissioned to do so by the very authority of Jesus Christ, who has victory over the enemy. And you've been called to walk in that same victory over the enemy. Otherwise, the Great Commission could never be accomplished. And just looking back over the landscape of the past 2,000 years, isn't that exactly what we've seen? Like, think about it. We've seen wickedness and evil and deception grow to outrageous proportions. Yes, But we've also seen a dramatic shift in the authority in the nations, right? Like, otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Like, the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone forth in the world. The rule and reign of Christ in the hearts of his people, and his kingdom has been advancing through his people. And it won't be here physically and fully. Remember this. It will not be here physically and fully until he physically returns. That's very important to note. However... His rule and reign is very real in and through you now. It's not an illegitimate reign. He is the king. He's the king of kings. You want to know just how radical the idea of the Gentiles receiving salvation actually was? Like, I, I want you to just think about this. Which, by the way, before I even go there, uh, do, you, do you realize like, that as evil has increased in the world, so too has the church. But as the church has increased, there's also been, you, like, wickedness is a real thing right now. As you know, that in the past, I think it's two years, or maybe it's since 2019, more people have been martyred for Christianity, for their faith in Christ, than the combined millennia before it. More people. Since the resurrection of Christ, more people have died for the name of Jesus than there have in the entire preceding generations. Combined. There was a shift that took place. You want to know what this is again? This is the radical idea that the Gentiles um, was just a crazy thought that they would be even able to receive salvation, even for the early church. Like, think about this. Jesus gave them that great commission in Matthew 28, and then he ascended into heaven. The book of Acts kicks off the record of the early church in Acts 1.8 by recording Jesus telling his disciples, he says, uh, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? This is that he literally kicks off acts like this, which is the account of the early church and, and the, the gospel going forth. Then in Acts 2, they get filled with the Spirit, and one of the most blatant supernatural signs that they are now filled with uh, and empowered by the Holy Spirit is that they're speaking the languages of other nations. Supernaturally, they, don't, they never learned it. They're just suddenly filled with the Spirit and speaking in these tongues that they never learned. And what they're speaking is the glory of God. They're suddenly God is declaring through them the gospel of Christ and his kingdom to these other nations and languages that they don't know. 
and thousands end up receiving salvation and getting baptized on that day. Now, you'd think that that might have clued them in a little bit to the fact that salvation isn't just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. But they were so stuck in the authority and the blindingness or the blindedness of the nations that they didn't get it. Because this idea of, like, you would think, again, um, that they would realize that the authority Satan had over the nations had been restrained in that particular way of deception, that, that they had realized that, that, that it now is available. But this idea of salvation being only for the Jews was so ingrained in them that it's not until ten chapters into the book of Acts that God literally has to give Peter a vision and send an angel to a Gentile Roman soldier to convince them that salvation is, in fact, for the Gentile, not only the Jew. That's ten chapters in. You know why it took so long for them to come to grips with it? Because it was such a radical shift. Because they hadn't come to grips with the fact that Satan has been restrained in that particular way. The Apostle Paul spoke of his authority, this authority shift in his letter to the Colossian church in Colossians 2.15. And he said, verse 15, he, dis, he, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. This is what Jesus did through the cross and resurrection. This is why we who are in Christ have authority over Satan. This is your victory. This is why James tells us in James 4, 7, the brother of Jesus, who said that when we submit to God, when you come under his rule and reign and you resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. Why? Because you're operating under a submitted authority to the one who has ultimate and all authority. The devil must flee. Now, if you get all arrogant and you're like, I'm awesome. I'm better than you, devil then you're going to be like some of the stories in the New Testament where, you know, there's even a story, which is not in my notes, but I'm going to go there anyway. There's even a story where they, like, a demon-possessed man, he, like, rips the clothes off of people and sends them running, and they're like, yeah, we know Jesus. We don't know you. Because they were trying to operate out of their own strength, not the authority of Christ. But when you come under his rule and his reign, then you become conduits of his grace and his authority in this world. This is why James 5 tells us that the prayer of the righteous has great power as it is working, because it's his power. This is what Paul's talking about when he speaks of our battle against authorities and principalities and the rulers of this dark age in Ephesians 6. He's talking about the fact that you can fight them um, because you've been given a greater authority in Christ. This is what Paul is talking about in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 10 when he says, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war against, I'm sorry, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Because he's the king. Why? Because he reigns. Why? Because he's overcome. How? Because, as Jesus himself said, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Because Jesus has overcome. Jesus holds the victory. He's calling us to walk in and through that. He's calling us to walk in that victory in and through every circumstance. You're in a battle. But you've not only been given all his authority, you've been given his victory. 
Revelation is the unveiling of that victory, the reminder to a people in difficult circumstances of who actually holds the victory to get your minds right and to align with what's true. This is why Jesus said, these things and more will you do also. When he did all these like crazy things, like he's doing all, even miracles and people are coming to salvation and he looks to his disciples and he's like, these things and more will you do also. <laughs> this is why First Peter 2.9 identifies us as a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That should sound familiar. It's not talking about who you'll be then. It's talking about who we are now. Verse 4. Speed it up. If that's possible. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority... Verse 4 of Revelation 20, if you guys are with me. All right. (laughs) Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands." So it speaks of those who have been killed for the sake of Christ and his word and those who had not compromised their faith in Christ alone for the sake of, the, of worldly gain, right? So it's talking about both martyrs and those who are in Christ and didn't worship uh, basically the world, right? So this is a reference to all true Christians. And it says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, that's interesting. Now, some, of these, some see this as a reference to the intermediate state, right? The intermediate state being uh, when people die in Christ and they are in um, face-to-face with Christ. Their soul is with Jesus, but their bodies are still not resurrected yet. It's before the day of judgment or the day of resurrection, right? That's called the intermediate state. And so some people see this as a reference to that intermediate state. We get a picture of that also in Revelation 6, verse 9 through 11, where we're presented with the souls of the martyrs or the witnesses in the throne room of heaven. We talked about that before. Go back and listen to some of the other sermons if you're interested. Now, I think that's true. I do think that it's talking about people who have died in Christ, and it's a picture of the intermediate state. I think that is true. But I also think that there's a clear picture here for you and me now as well. Remember the way the scriptures speak about salvation. It talks about them It talks about those who have received salvation as those who have died and been born again. Those who have been raised to new life. Those who are risen in Christ now. In a form of resurrection, even now. So much scripture that I don't have time to read. (laughs) But I'm going to read Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 5 through 10, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That sounds familiar because it's the same thought process. 
For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wait a minute. God wants me to do good things on the earth? I thought that he was just, we were just saved by grace and that, that was it. No. He set you apart. For good. He wants to rule and reign through you here and now in every aspect of life. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. He didn't say, this is the Lord's prayer that you should pray when I get back. He said, pray it now. Or think about the way Jesus himself spoke about stuff like this. Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or in John 3, where Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order to see the kingdom of heaven, he must be born again. And just to drive the point home, because I'm feeling extra thorough this morning, even though I'm supposed to be done, (laughs) Um, Colossians 3, verse 1 through 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, He's talking to the church in the first century. They were alive on the earth. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, past tense, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you're in Christ, your current identity is one who is risen in Christ. Yet that resurrection has not been fully consummated or fully physically realized. That's the tension between now and when Christ returns. That's what we're looking forward to. However, the victory has been won and the authority has been given for the Great Commission. Satan's been restrained and Jesus reigns. So yes, in a sense, you've been made alive together with Christ By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, to what end? To show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. To show it, to demonstrate it, to proclaim it, to testify to it, to witness in every area of life, marketplace, family, military, politics, everything. Jesus is king. And to walk in good works even now, seeking first his kingdom and trusting that all else will be added unto you. Aligning with him, even in a world that wants you to unalign. This is what we do. When you believe this, guys, it'll change the way that you live and operate in this world. You will live out of and operate in the righteous rule and reign of Christ, who is king of kings and operates through his people even now. Verse (laughs) 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So again, the first resurrection speaks to our spiritual resurrection in Christ. This is the eternal life in which we uh, may experience even now, not just one day when we die, right? But of course, I think this is also that reference to those who have physically died. For those who die in Christ, they still enter into a state of life because we've been given eternal life, right? And so... The presence, they, they go into the presence of Jesus, but they still await their glorified, physical, physically resurrected bodies. But as for the rest of the dead who don't die in Christ, they don't come to life until the end of this age, which refers to Christ's return and judgment day. And yes, there will be a resurrection of unbelievers. 
That's a thing. We'll get into it later. Um, it, they're resurrected unto something that is not super fantastic, though. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So what's he talking about there? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Again, this is speaking to those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. This is how you share in the first resurrection. You're risen in Christ. This is what was symbolized through Babylon. Baptism, right? This is what's symbolized through baptism. As, as the old man is drowned and the new man is raised unto new life in Christ. The first resurrection. Notice that the first death still holds sway over those who experience the first resurrection. But the second death doesn't. The second death is that lake of fire. You'll never taste it. And the first death is just a transition into more life for those who are in Christ. Because there's that language again. Who are the people that have tasted the first, who have experienced the first resurrection? Who are they? They're priests of God and of Christ, and they reign with him for a thousand years. It's almost as though that we're like a royal priesthood or something. Sound familiar? You should. He ain't talking about somebody way over here. He's talking about you. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. So this is a direct reference to the Old Testament prophecy in Ezekiel 38 and 39, where these terms Gog and Magog are used to denote all the nations of the earth who rise up against God's covenant people. This is a vision of the final battle and the great and final deception. This number of those who oppose the true king of kings and his people seems overwhelming and incalculable like the sand of the sea, which is a term that was used to describe the descendants of Abraham. Who are you? You. So you're not the people that are described here as Gog and Magog. You're the ones that they're after. But the point here is that as wickedness increases, so does the righteous. Again, I think that we're presented here with what we already saw in Revelation 19 as evil stands in radical opposition to Christ and his people. Okay? Verse 9. I'm going to make it. I promise. And they, I, I better not promise that. I, I take that back. Just sit tight. And they, <laughs> Verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So, catch the imagery. The imagery here is that of an ever-growing and massive opposition to Christ's rule and reign and the message of his people who are presented as camping. (laughs) They're camping people, which speaks to our identity throughout Scripture as sojourners in a land that's not our own. We are a a pilgrim people on the way to something greater. We're citizens of heaven. That's what it's speaking to. And again, We're also portrayed here as the beloved city. It's not talking about Jerusalem. It's another way of speaking about the people of God being his beloved city. We've seen that already in Revelation a lot, that he talks about us as his bride and as 
this beloved city. And so it speaks our identity again as his people. And so while it feels like we're being surrounded and overwhelmed and outnumbered, you ever feel like that as a believer in this world? Am I alone on that one? (laughs) It's not the truth. This is what it says. You're not overwhelmed. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. This is the way God responds to those who conspire against his people in the Old Testament. With seemingly great opposition, when, when, when God's people are faced with this huge, these huge numbers of opposition surrounding them, they're often met with consuming fire. And it's like, game over. It's like when, uh, well, verse 10. Verse 10, the last verse. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, this, is, this was an anticlimactic end for those who were deceived by the devil to stand against Christ the King. It's like the, the, you, you see this idea where you get people, it, you hear it all the time, it's just like, how could you ever believe in the gospel? Like, Christians are so dumb. Like, how could anyone ever, like, mock it? And it's like, you know, no intelligent person could ever believe in some pie in the sky, you know, idea of a God. That's crazy. And yet, the most intelligent people throughout history do and continue to, even today. And this mocking, it feels intimidating. It feels like you're alone and surrounded and all of the things because that's what the enemy does. He tries to intimidate but it's like that scene from Indiana Jones, right? You remember in Indiana Jones where he's walking through and, and he's like got all this, this guy confronts him and, and this guy whips out the sword and he does all this crazy intimidating sword work and it's like this huge, really intimidating thing and he just pulls out a gun and shoots him. It's like over. You know, you think it's going to be this like massive battle and it's like, ah, oh, and it's just anticlimactic, over, right? That's what's happening here. The enemy surrounds God's people, and then Jesus comes back, and he's like, nope. And with a word, done, cast it out. It sounds a lot like the end of Revelation 19, where the armies gather against the Lord, but they're slain by the sword coming from his mouth. In other words, they're consumed by his word, just the way that Jesus cast out the demons, by a word. Again, I think that it's clear that this is all taking place at the second coming um, I'm sorry, that this all takes place, yeah, at the second coming of Christ. And with his second coming also comes judgment that we'll get into next week because we definitely don't have time for it this week. So I hope this challenges and encourages you to live out your identity as those risen in Christ Jesus, even on this side of his return. Because the Great Commission isn't just about getting people to heaven when they die. It's about empowering people to bring heaven to earth even before they die. It's not just about making converts or getting people to associate with Christianity. It's about introducing others to the man, Jesus, the Savior, and the King. Immersing them in in community and embracing them into discipleship. It's about teaching them everything that he's taught us. It's about operating in and under his authority here and now and walking out his rule and reign in our hearts here 
and now. It's about living according to what brings him glory here and now on the earth as it is in heaven and manifesting his rule and reign upon the earth now. These are the things that won't pass away. These are the things which are established upon the rock-solid foundation of Christ as it pertains to human flourishing in society and righteousness in our families, in the marketplace, in your marriages, in the military, and even, and yes, even, politics. Christ is king over every politician. Right? Jesus does reign. Whether you know it or not, he's king of kings. This is our fundamental calling as believers who are filled with his spirit and called to cultivate and steward creation under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. I heard somebody once say that a lot of Christians treat excellence in this world as though we're polishing brass on the Titanic as it's sinking. What's the point? we got to get out of that mindset. It's unbiblical. Jesus told us that it's the meek who will inherit the earth. And you know what the word meek means? Bridled. Reined in. It doesn't mean weak. It's like a war horse whose strength is bridled in the great, almighty king's hands. That's you. That's me. That's why, by faith, we look to him and away from everything else on this earth. And that's why you, who are meek, will inherit the earth when it's made new. Let's pray.